Knock knock. Where? No go. You can. How many on the list? Three. Not too strange. Yes. Sisters. Yeah, boxer size. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, I tell ya, not a fit woman. Release the sexual tension as well. I don't know if I tell you tried you. She likes you rough, dude. Wouldn't you like to fuck her now? Yeah, I'm too old for that shit, so are you. Yeah, speak for yourself, Grandad. Uh, Kiev was. Yeah, yeah, I know. This man, it was eight months ago. Gotta get back on the horse again. Do you know what I mean? It's all right. It's all right. You team back the guy again. Two musketeers. You can do it. Welcome to Opera Omnia. This is season one, episode number two. I'm your host, Duncan McLeish. Welcome to the show. Opera Omnia is a podcast exclusively looking at a director's filmography. This very first season, we're looking at the great and powerful Ben Wheatley. And joining me for the entire season is a man that I am now very proud to say is a podcast friend. He is... The creative <laughs> genius. I'm going to say genius because I think we can say that. And if you know someone wants to argue that, then I will arm wrestle them, beat them, and then prove that once again, genius is the right word. Behind <laughs> the What Z Horror Party podcast is, of course, the amazing Mr. Watson. How are you doing, sir? <laughs> but, buddy, I, I'm great. You know, I'm glad to be back with you to talk some more Ben Wheatley after all of our audio issues and Skype issues today. <laughs> My God, Skype. if only the listeners knew. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. They don't know. They don't realize that we 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 talked for about like 50 minutes, and yeah. um, it was a great conversation. And then I went on this huge monologue, and like you went quiet and I was about five minutes into it before a message oh, popped up saying no. um, my audio wasn't working now and I was like I don't know how much he heard all I'm going to say is <laughs> that there was a huge segment in that talking where I did nothing but praise you and if you didn't hear that 
Mr. Well. Watson, then, then. <laughs> let, let me condense it down. You're awesome, and I'm happy that you're back. Likewise, man. And, you know, I'll say we got some great feedback for that Down Terrace 2009 episode, episode one of season one of Opera Omnia here. And I'm one listener <laughs> astutely caught on to the bromance that's going on between us here. And listen, I, I can't say I'm disappointed in that. Oh, man. Like when I was heading it down, all I could hear was Marvin Gaye all the way right through in my ears. Everything was like I said to you like earlier on, I, it was almost too comfortable, if you know what I mean. It was, it was. Like, it was. It was like, people were like, you make it sound so effortless, because it was effortless. It was, it, was. it was a fun recording. And I'll be honest with you, the one that I know both of us were probably most excited about doing when Ben Wheatley's name was flung around was this second episode. Uh-huh. That's not to discount that there are many movies after this that are going to be immensely interesting conversations but this specific one here Kill List is the one if you're a horror fan Kill List is the one that puts the guy on the map this is the the pin on the map of this is a guy I need to like watch out for and if his name gets attached to things I will be excited either that or it's a movie that you watched and you had not a fucking clue what happened and that is cool as well because we will try on this episode to maybe ingratiate or indoctrinate which is probably a better Ooh. considering the, the movie how fitting yeah exactly uh, you know we'll, we'll try and indoctrinate you into its weird and wild customs uh, and then you can make up your own mind because ultimately the thing I love most about Kill List is that it is one of these movies that is hugely open to interpretation and there there's a lot there's a lot of space here there's a lot of space to sit down and put your feet up which I kind of like uh, I think that makes uh, an interesting viewing and this is a movie in which my opinions have changed wildly um, oh, okay. from the very first time I watched it the first time I watched it well, it was like that Wicker Man clone well done Ben Wheatley you've just ripped off the Wicker Man and then <laughs> the second time I watched it I was like not Wicker Man clone? question mark um, and it's adapted over time to where I think this might be this might be one of the most important British horror movies of the last decade. I think it might, might oh, wow. actually be. I, 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 like, what's going to be really interesting is in two years' time, I'm going to be doing the old uh, Summer Teapots Top 10 series looking at the 2010s. And I'll tell you right now, if Kill List isn't in that top 10, I'm not going to be happy. <laughs> like, that's how strongly <laughs> I feel about it. I think it is like a hugely powerful and unique voice and one that I've said before for those that want to hate themselves and sit in darkened rooms afterwards uh, if you want you double bill kill list with hereditary and that is a oh. that is a that is a soul crushing time if ever there was one or if you want to bring a bit of brevity to your situation pair it up with a uh, Bruges, which is still equally as depressing but Weirdly apt. <laughs> it's just. No, I, ha- I haven't seen that one, Duncan. You've never seen In Bruges. Oh my god. No. Oh, right. <laughs> I haven't. I'll, I'll remedy that. <laughs> yeah, not 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 a horror movie. Regardless what yeah. Scott from Scotland versus Evil will have you tell. It's gotcha. one not a horror comedy, and two not a horror movie. Uh, but it is an <laughs> incredible movie from the director of that Three Billboards movie that won tons of awards oh. two years ago. Yeah, and it has a uh, Brendan Gleeson and uh, Colin Farrell as two hitmen 
um, on the on the run, so to speak, uh, in Bruges after Colin Farrell has act. This is where it links to the kill list. Colin Farrell's character has been has is an exile in Bruges because he was he's a hitman. He was on a job and he accidentally killed a kid. And wow. the penalty for killing a kid in those circles is death at the hands of another hitman. So he's taken to Inbrugge to spend his final days um, with Brendan Gleeson, who is his uh, compadre. And it is a wonderfully funny but infinitely dark viewing experience. It's, it's fucking incredible. You're gonna, you great. are gonna love it. You're gonna fucking okay. love it. So kill list pair, not with that. I would say oh, start with Kill List and then finish with Inbrugge. So there's a bit of light question mark, maybe, potentially, at the end of the tunnel. Hmm. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love everything that's happening right now. It's making me so, so, so happy. The question <laughs> I need to ask you, though, is, like, before, I'd, uh, on the previous episode, we'd swung in, mm-hmm. we did a little bit of an introduction where we were talking about shit. It made me happy. People got to hear your voice if they hadn't before, and hopefully yes. people are checking out your stuff because it's, it, it is not only worthy, but it's mandatory for anyone out there that wants to enjoy their lives listening to podcasts they should be checking out Aww. all the stuff with your voice in it um, you have just however dropped some news out there about the the merging of your voice with another podcast give the listeners some details about what this exciting new venture in the life of Mr. Watson is oh well yeah you know I, I have not been able to actually talk about this on a show because when Dave and I did our last episode of the Watsy Party Horse Show we had recorded that before this news was even known to me. So, yeah, I've been knighted, I guess you could say, (laughs) as an official co-host of the infamous podcast known as The Horrorcast, which is yet another show that takes a fun and intellectual approach to the genre. So, yeah, you can check me out there. We did our first episode on Hammer Horror. It was their their second episode covering Hammer Horror. I think one of eight or something like that. And I'm on the second one. We did The Mummy 1959 and what was it? Uh... The Curse of the Werewolf 61. Excellent, excellent. I I will say, and I want to to put forward that I don't feel it as a controversial statement, but Hammer's a Mummy, better than Universal's a Mummy. Oh, yes. I loved it. I freaking loved it. And Cushing, I I made the the joke, apparently, I I thought I came up with this, but apparently it's been a meme for years. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I thought I made up the more, you know, Peter Cushing, more Cushing for the pushing. But then I, I, I wanted to post a meme about it or make a meme about it rather rather than post one make my own like yeah I came up with that nah that's uh not my joke <laughs> well I will Damn tell it. you right now like in all my years I've never heard of it so it's your joke now buddy hey uh, so, okay <laughs> so that's, that's who I operate fuck the internet um, like my, my favourite like I distilled I was once asked my opinion on uh, Universal's The Mummy and I distilled mm-hmm. it down into a very brief description which is you know which is basically lighting on the eyes and a guy force choking cunts out that's literally (laughs) that's 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 a universal movie movie right there Uh, I mean it's a controversial statement and it'll never make a poster for the movie but um, 
You know, if anyone wants Imagine to that. It, <laughs> if anyone wants to rob with it, they can. Force choking. Oh, Duncan, For, that's I love it. That's literally what he does. That's what he does. Like, he, it is. He constantly walks about the place looking like he's trying to find the location of a rebel base. Um, <laughs> his modus operandi for the entire movie is that. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. So, so we did Down Terrace, uh, which is by proxy and uh, by default the number one Ben Wheatley movie coming into this episode because it's the only one we've reviewed thus far. And uh, we have a pretender to the throne, which is uh, Kill List, which is the movie we're going to be discussing on this one. Now I inaccurately on the previous episode stated that we would be doing this for six episodes totally discounting the fact that um, Happy New Year Colin Bernstein is technically a movie but is also a TV movie but it was released cinematically so that will be a seventh movie so it is seven movies no one has picked me out in this it's just my pedantic mind going back over this (laughs) going wait one second I created show art for seven episodes and I said six on that show. That's not right. Um, so yeah, we will be doing Happy New Year, Colin Bernstein. He does have another movie due out. I don't think it's going to land this year, funnily enough. And it is for Netflix. He is doing a remake of... And the name that escapes me. It's the Hitchcock movie. And it's for Netflix. Oh. It's black and white. And it's not Victoria, but it's something that sounds like that. And yeah, it'll come back to me, but it won't be out in time for the end of this season. So it will be seven episodes. And unless he releases something that no one knows about, that no one is talking about in the next seven months, six months, we won't be covering that. So that is your definitive list. The list of movies we will be covering is Dim Terrace, which we have done, Kill List. The next episode will be Sightseers. We will then be doing A Field in England, High Rise, uh, Free Fire, and Happy New Year, Colin Bunsen. So just clarifying that for the listeners out there. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a run. What I love about this is the beauty of Opera Omnia is we're going to be touching on loads of different genres and loads of different expressions of a director's voice you know through different like storytelling mechanisms but specifically through different genre ideas and confines uh, which I think is the really cool part about this overall but this is his horror movie he has done a couple of horror movies but this is the one where he himself said you know you could call this a crime movie I wouldn't you could call this a horror movie. <laughs> I would kind of agree. He called this a war movie, which, yeah, when this movie huh. finishes, you kind of feel like you've been through a war. Um, yes. It's, yes. It, it really is a, a, an experience, to say the least. And that is what we're going to be doing on this episode. So I'm very, very excited. The last thing I want to ask you, Mr. Watson, before we kick into full gear and start not only discussing, but maybe breaking down... Uh, a movie which, like I say, is mandatory two viewings. Kill List is a two-watch oh. minimum. You would agree? Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, baby, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like the fact you were like, yes, Duncan, obviously. I mean, like, <laughs> do, do I look crazy? No. So, you know, let me be quiet. Like, do I listen to Biscuit? Yes, but so do you. So that's fine. And <laughs> we're, we're cool with that, 100%. Um, the, the thing I wanted to say to you is that we now are lucky, I would say, that we have just closed out a decade where you could say the back end of that decade were predominantly dominated 
critically speaking, but I would say by kind of top 10 lists as well, by what the media dubbed, and I don't like the term because it makes me feel yucky. It also makes me feel like we're trying to elevate horror to, you know, trying to create an additional tier of horror appreciation, which I don't think there needs to be. I think people just mm-hmm. appreciate movies the way they appreciate them, and that's enough for me. But the the quote-unquote elevated or prestige horror category, which has been flung out quite a lot, and movies get dumped yes. in there, which critics tend to like, and a certain level of horror fandom likes, but your kind of, what they would class as bargain-basement horror fan wouldn't enjoy. But like... To me, Kill List was kind of preempting that like five years before that. It was, I think it's why it flew under the radar as much as it did because it was doing a lot of this, what we consider as being kind of elevated themes or more abstract concepts or specifically non-committal with content. You know, it'll give you things, but it's not going to spoon feed you answers. It leaves the door open to interpretation. It was doing it then. And we now, when you look at a movie like Midsommar, which came out, you know, last year to great, you know, acclaim, and I would side with that. I thought it was an incredible fucking movie. But when you look oh, yeah. at Midsommar and you look at a Kill List, movies which are ostensibly a decade apart, but you look at the, the content themselves about what could be considered paganistic ritual or even devil worship, um, handled in completely two different ways. But you could see on the same level, movies that are linked with that idea of the kind of Wicker Man-esque journey of a character at base level with the audience through a series of trials to an outcome which is some sort of ritualistic sacrifice or elevation at the end to a higher standing within the confines of a group. Do you think... Here's my question. It's a long-winded way to get to a question. (laughs) But I I feel immensely proud of the fact that I got all that out knowing how many drinks I've had tonight without stumbling. (laughs) Um, Do do you feel, though, that this is just a... Is this just like a 2010s thing? Or, you know, if I start being nosy and dig into the 2000s, or dare I say, even the 90s, when we had a lot of satanic power movies... Is, you know, are these things a flash in the pan or is this a case of these movies are out there it's just maybe, maybe I don't want to cast dispersions on the, you know, the media but maybe the media is just not paying attention are we getting a lot of these movies, you know the, these sort of movies which, not necessarily about paganistic things or whatever, but are we have we always been getting you know, a relative steady stream of movies with content maybe more abstract, maybe not necessarily art house, but movies that, that leave the door open to a bit of a bit of a audience thought and participation than we would be giving them credit for, do you think? Oh, you know what? I, I would say, first off, I'm okay with I don't know if the term itself, prestige horror or elevated horror, I am okay with the term as long as it's understood that this has been a part of the genre since the get-go. I don't want to pretend it's a new thing. You know what I mean? Yep. With the 100%. Yeah. So having said that, I would say that, you know, this is part of a larger tradition that is essentially, you know, part of this sort of fabric of 
you know, smarter movies. And I mean, I don't want to say smarter versus dumb, but I, I'm not afraid to draw a line in the sand because I like dumbass, stupid movies. Oh, I yes. like the art house fun movies. But, you know, so I'm not afraid to draw a line in the sand. And I would put this on the side of elevated. And once again, just as long as we understand that that's not a new thing within the genre. And as long as that distinction is there, I'm, I'm pretty cool with it. Do you think the reason here? Here's my, I'll give you my theory. Right. I, okay. I came into this question with a theory and I wanted to see if Ooh. the theory held war. Right? Do you think that the difference now between uh, Midsommar being released uh, and a kill list being released uh, ostensibly nine years apart, um, the difference now being that horror holds a certain commercial weight that it didn't ten years ago, that these movies are now hmm. playing widely at a cinema and thus open to sources that can write articles on how horror has changed and elevated where they maybe wouldn't have paid attention to like Variety wasn't paying attention to Ben Wheatley in 2010 Variety is now very much paying attention to horror as a genre in 2019 do you think that might be the difference? Oh I think that commercial viability is something that you you always got to consider when it comes to trends that are rising and falling. Mm. And so I would say that that, you know, I think your your theory is on to something there. And I, I would also say that kind of going back to what you were saying before regarding prestige or elevated horror, I, I do want to say that we why I loved the 2010s as much as I did. And I know you did as well. Oh, yes. I think we're we're not unique, but we we've both kind of come out and said that it's our favorite of the horror decades, I believe so far. Oh, yes. oh, and that's, that's where I am on it. Yeah. 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 And so. So, buddy, like the, the 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 thing is, what's really cool about this decade is we are seeing the, I guess the the evolution in action of a more, you know, sophisticated approach in certain respects to story. Things are evolving, you know, and and, and that's fine. We don't want things to be where they were twenty years ago. We don't want a, a perpetually static and stagnant genre that just stays in one paradigm and never grows and expands. And I think we're seeing that in the 2010s or have seen it in the 2010s and will continue to do so here in the 2020s where the, these roaring 20s where we're going to continue to see a, a more sophisticated approach to certain story templates. And I loved that. I love that we're in this time, man. Yeah, I think when I see someone talk about like a remake of a horror movie uh, that's coming up or someone paying homage to like an 80s horror movie and you know the reason they like it is uh, not just from a visual aspect but you know that it, it follows like um, kind of art type templates of certain stereotypical character confines which were relevant in the 80s but not in 2020 my eyes roll back in a way that they'll never roll forward um, <laughs> or that. yeah it was fine in the 80s because let's be honest like it was a different audience and people were different yeah. so if you're if you're now remaking that movie in 2020 I expect the dialogue to be a bit crisper the storytelling to be a bit tighter I expect yep. to be a bit more in terms of subtext I expect you know I expect the voice making that movie not trying to make an 80s movie but instead trying to make a movie which exists within the universe of a you know franchise that you've set out but adding something th- fresh and relevant to it now because that's what 
you know, you should be doing in this time period. If all you want to do is make 80s movies that feel like 80s movies or 70s movies that feel like 70s movies, and once again, I think there's a place for that. I think if you watch a movie like Luz, uh, which came out last year, which is clearly a movie which loves the fact that even the cinematography, the the, the render on it feels like late 70s, early 80s, Um, Mm. and it's set in that time period that works but if you're remaking a movie franchise from the you know the 80s um, and you're setting it in 2020 for example and people are you're still within those confines of like 80 stereotypes I think you've you've just taken the easy approach the the sensible and I think more rewarding approach is trying to update that material and make it relevant to a brand new audience um and I think that's where these, I think, elevated, quote-unquote, or prestige horror movies, quote-unquote, are just movies which are actually written for the time period they're in. They're just written for how yeah. people consume media now, or consume stories now. And if that means that to some horror fans or people that critique the genre or critique the the way that the scene is played out feels like it's, it's maybe a stretch or a push in a certain direction... You know, that's your way of looking at it. But to me, the exciting part, and piggybacking on what you were saying, the exciting part is that I want to keep seeing things progress and get more um, get, get more ambitious and exploring of tone content, design, narrative, and, and, and keep things going. I would much rather someone took the biggest risk ever in the world and created a mediocre movie than set out to play it safe and create a mediocre movie. Yeah, you know I, I, mean? I love I love that you said that. I'm yeah. right there with you. And this is where we are with Ben Wheatley. Ben Wheatley is a guy who seems to never really... This is a guy who openly said uh, that, you know, one of the biggest influences for him when making... Um, specifically, this makes me laugh every time I say it, uh, when, when making High Rise which I maybe we're going to get into real soon, was Zardoz. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, Zardoz? Like, we're talking about Sean Connery cutting around in a mankini with a gun? Okay. I'm, Interesting. I am with you there. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, a, he's a big fan of really weird things. Um, and as a result, I think that when you watch his movies, they tend to be big balls of weird. And I love oh. that. Love it so much. Love it. Yeah. Give me it all. Yeah, definitely. Same. Yeah, same here. And you know what? What's cool about what Wheatley's doing here, you know, because somebody could say, like you you had said earlier about first impressions of this movie on that first time watch, you know, oh, we got another Wicker Man here. People have said the same thing about, you know, Midsummer. Mm-hmm. And I would say that, okay, maybe there are certain uh, uh, aspects where this is operating in that sort of Wicker Man template, pagan this, you know, cult this. But what I would, what's great too about the progression of the genre as we go through the years is that it's okay, and I think we should give ourselves permission to to embrace this philosophy. Is that it's okay to stand on the shoulders of giants to see the genre more clearly and get a better view of the landscape. That's fine, and I think that's one thing that Kill List, Kill List does so well is it does stand on on the shoulders, and and that is a very I want to make a distinction that I'm not saying a ripoff. And I don't even know how much I would say this is deliberately or rather visually homaging 
anything, mm-hmm. really. It, it, it's doing kind of, Wheatley's kind of doing what he wants to do here. But from a story template perspective and, you know, tackling these themes and such, he's standing on the shoulders of, you know, what's come. He knows what's come before and he's making something that that stands on the shoulders of that and takes that in mind and tells a new story. I mean, Duncan taking this whole cult and this whole thing through the lens of hitmen. Oh, yes. I mean, that's Man, what a gut punch! What a kick right to the right to the dick or, or whatever else he got down there. If you uh, if you you know once you hit the the stride, once this movie hits its stride and you start really getting into it, and you're like, wait, where is this going? And man, I yeah. you know what's cool, Duncan, and I do want to touch on this because this was a second time watch for me, and I went on a bit of a journey with this particular viewing because first things first, after our coverage of Down Terrace 2009, I noticed right away, okay that Ben Wheatley had made some real strides forward in his abilities behind the camera. Oh, yes. Like, Down Terrace was raw. It felt small, delightfully so. But immediately upon turning on Kill List here for this watch, I could see a more mature filmmaker at the helm. Yeah. Yeah. What what, what do you think about that? I think, yeah, I think you're... It's not only maturity, but I think... It's not even confidence. I think Ben, Ben Wheatley, as a storyteller... And he is like you. You made it like a, a really astute point here, which I always link back to when, like, there there is a whole sea of people out there that love Quentin Tarantino. I am one of them. You Quentin Tarantino yeah. releases a movie, oh. I am there day one. There are a whole sea of people out there that instantly call that guy a hack. Oh, he just, yeah. he just, you know, he just, it's just, it's just like whole sections from other movies pieced together. And I'll tell you where that is accurate and also falls apart, right? Yes, yes, you can sit there and say, well, this bit's from that movie and this bit's from that movie and this bit's from that movie. And that is correct. To stream out of context scenes from different movies that you are recreating and piece together into a narrative that completely works from start to finish that is satisfying and feels seamless, I think is harder to do than, you know, off the cuff, just create a brand new story. Because you're basically taking lots of different ideas which aren't your own and piece them together. The way Tarantino works is by... He's like the he's like, he's like a guy that cre- can create the perfect mixtape, you know what I mean, of, of, yeah. of, of music. It's taken, it's taken all these different ideas and elements from other things, but put them in a confine in a story that is his and give you something satisfying at the end. Ben Wheatley is... Like, the Wicker Man comparison is correct in two aspects. The first aspect is that it captures the idea of, you know, a character going through a journey, right, set mm-hmm. out by a cult or a group or whatever, to to a means to an end, whatever that end is. The second thing is the ending itself is very iconic and it leads to some sort of paganistic ritual or occultist ritual. That's correct. Where Ben Wheatley wins out 100% is Ben Wheatley sets out a movie which has tone and dread from start to finish. Unparalleled. Like, unparalleled in this movie and compared to something the wicker man takes a good half an hour before you're like something's not right here and i don't (laughs) feel comfortable and things are a bit weird and i don't want to be here kill list does it within five minutes (laughs) oh yeah 
And that's like it just the dread becomes you you get uncomfortable in your own skin watching the movie and nothing and there are scenes where it's just two people talking and you're like why do I feel so uncomfortable right now and it's about tone mm-hmm. and weight and I think that to Wheatley is more important and Down Terrace had it as well and Kill Your know, Kill List has it Sightseers has it in a different like guise High Rise has it in a different guise. Free Fire has it in a different guy. That, you know, a field in England certainly has it all the way through it. And I think that is Wheatley's gift. Is regardless what the narrative is, he sets out a tone and adds to it. It's like, it's like a weird game of uncomfortable Jenga, which every piece removed <laughs> and added to the top is just another bit of uncomfortableness t- for the viewer to be subjected to all the way through and it's about the journey all these movies are about journey like as characters either finding out something about themselves or on a journey to be used uh, destroyed or converted at the hands of something and that's wow that i think that's his that's his gift that's what he does Mm -hmm. in cinema and when you watch this one right into the point you're saying it's it's not only got a better budget and he's using he's using some some actors that have two paid over here, but this is the one where he collaborates with his partner, uh, his longtime partner and now longtime writing partner, Amy Jump comes in to yep. work with him on this one and you can see the difference whereas Down Terrace is this lean thing and the main actor is the kind of co-writer of it and it's this kind of you know, it's almost an insular sort of project. The next one he comes up, he's now working with his partner. He's now, you know, working with different people. Uh, you know, he's expanding it out. He's got a bit more money to play with, a bigger concept to play with. And as a result, in the space of what is less than two years, delivers a movie which, you know, there's a reason a lot of people have never seen Down Terrace before. It's because a lot of people think Kill List is his first movie. <laughs> and that's because Kill, oh. Kill List come out and people everywhere, everywhere was like, who's this guy? You know, this is the first time I've seen him. This is the first time, because it got all the... Like, there was no there was no reviews out there saying, you know, Kill List has hit on the scene, this great horror movie. Go back and check out Down Terrace. No one yeah. was talking about it. And I think that's, to me, is the, the thing when you say so. Is this one feels like a festival movie. You know, this one feels like a movie movie, like the sort of thing you would go yeah. and buy on Blu-ray. Dim Terrace feels like the sort of thing you would find on Netflix. You know what I mean? You wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. you, you wouldn't maybe physically own it, but you would find it on a streaming site. Whereas Kill List is the sort of movie that you're like, yeah, I, I, you know, this is a, this is an own. You know, this is a, I need to own this movie. And that's not mm. to diminish it, it's just the, there is a marked quality difference in the space of two years here. And that has only went on to bigger and brighter things. Uh, oh, man, I, I love that we're on this journey because we're, we're on a journey as well, Duncan, and I like that. Uh, so can I ask you, are we going to continue in as we go through his work? Are we going to see more of this theme of characters being sort of uh, uh, their agency being messed with in that they're being used for something are we going to be seeing this just like we saw on down terrace and with kill list here oh yes oh yes oh yes my friend and it's used in different guises and that's what's fun about it when you go Ah. back and watch sightseers uh, which is we spoke about this before as a movie which you you went in very drunk and to be honest with you i would love to say that was a bad thing to do but i'm scottish yep 
And nope. <laughs> I mean, I like part of me was proud that that's how you approached it. Um, like when we go back and watch that, you see how he doesn't the guys there, but specifically, I mean, he high rise he's tackling a uh, JG Ballard uh, in class division and class politics, oh. and you know, uh, uh, but it's it's basically high rise is Snowpiercer, but set it's Snowpiercer, but set a, blo- a, a tower block of properties as opposed to setting a train. Um, okay you know and then when you jump forward to free free fire is about an arms deal gone wrong and when you you look at a field in england the field in england is about you know a guy who stumbles upon uh occultist practice during like the english civil war you know in this in this field so it's all about characters being driven to a position where they are out of their depth but at the same time there is this like kind of make or break situation where the character either uh, levels up, so to speak, or evolves to the next level, or if they don't, they are they're rolled over, and it's it's all the way right through it, and it's just different guises, wow. it's different approaches to very kind of insular, kind of core, almost Rosetta. That's the Rosetta Stone of his. It's the foundation, uh, the keystone, okay. so to speak, of. Of the way you build stories, I feel personally oh. it's always about like a character being introduced into something that is totally out with their depth, and how they acclimate to it is the the journey we go on as the audience. And that's you're always at that level. So when you're given those decisions of, well, would I do it? Like when we speak about the movie just coming up, there is a bit here where you'll be like, well, you know, he's. He comes across this guy, and you know he's he's a hitman, and he's going to have to kill him. And then you find out what this guy has oh. done, and then yeah. you see the 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 actions that are portrayed out of this barbaric kind of violence. And part of you, as the viewer, is like that. Yes, <laughs> you like you're repulsed by it, but you instinctually yeah. understand why it's as visceral as it is. And that's what I love about it is is daring. Is daring the audience to to accept what is happening on the screen, uh, and this is this is before the time period of like uh, the the, the kind of like nowadays it's cool to like the villain, like on that level, like yeah. shows like Dexter, like specifically mm-hmm. give you the idea of well he's a, he's a serial killer and he's a bad guy, but he's killing bad guys, so that makes him okay in my book. You're like, well, no, he's still a killer and there's no due process here, so what the, what the fuck is going on? And what does that say about me? I'm going to have a cold, hard, sober look in the mirror and ask me a <laughs> Not couple... too sober. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, never too sober. Um, and ask me some questions about what that says about me. Um, but, like, that's... I think that's what he... I think that's what he does really well. It's, that is the... It's... It's that kind of... It's, it's what caused outrage when like movies like Peeping Tom were released in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's this idea of, you know, uh, the the audience not only being complicit, but looking in the reflection of the deeds that they're doing. So you are the person that's doing these things and you have to yeah. live with those decisions. As It's what funny games so expertly and and articulately Mm -hmm. states on the screen is you as the audience have paid the ticket to see this movie and are complicit with the violence shall we go on (laughs) right yes yes we shall I'm not feeling good about myself but yes yes we shall (laughs) and as soon as you do that any any potential 
moral high ground that you can have is evaporated underneath you by your complicit action yes. of purchasing the ticket. So I, 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 I love... I lo- we, we spoke about this before we hit record. Uh, I love grey when it comes to... like Shades of grey are the most interesting aspects because shades of grey are where conversations ha- happen. Yeah. Like, definitives, black or... This is black. Yes, that's black. Where is the... Where's the, the the chance to debate that? There isn't any. I've just agreed with your statement. This is white. Yeah, that is white. This is great. Well, is it grey? What shade of grey is it? You know, is it grey right. black or is it grey white? Or where we, you know, that's where the conversations come up. And I, I personally feel that Wheatley is a great example of a career built on shades of grey. Um, everything is yes. open to interpretation. And everything is on some level right and everything is on some level wrong and he's very very yeah. good at giving answers but not not giving full answers <laughs> so. yeah you know what that that is very true about this movie duncan well said and i, I do want to go back to something you said earlier because i first off i feel like we could we could spend a very long time if we wanted just talking about the beauty of gray yes I, the more you know the the the, the gray side the, the moral morally gray and how that is the the thing that sparks the conversations because black and white doesn't. The conversation is over, but gray is where the conversation is. And this movie has, has that, has shades of gray like crazy. But I do want to go back to something you said before that about this being a a mandatory to watch minimum. Yes. I mean, you, you have to see this a second time. And Duncan, I was noticing things on this second watch here for me where, you know, going in, I know what the end is mm-hmm. and I know where it's going. But Wheatley very brilliantly <laughs> drops clues that a first-time viewer can't catch. <laughs> for instance, for instance, the scene where Jay and his family are sword fighting out in their front yard. Okay, mm-hmm. that right there is some tremendously placed foreshadowing to the final scene of the film with the hunchback. Right? Yes. Oh yes. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when when she's got the kid on her back and they're sword fighting. I'm like, whoa. Okay. So, wow, Wheatley just really impressed me here, as, as I knew he would. And then, then there's the scene where the character of Fiona carving a symbol on the back of the mirror while attending Jay's and Shell's party. Things like that. Mm-hmm. And I'll say this. This viewing also raised a number of questions in my mind that caused me a little bit of frustration, if I'm being honest, which in turn sent me on a hunt for answers. And I felt really satisfied with what I found. Because I believe I found what I was looking for when I went to search for the, sort of the answers to these vagaries that uh, <laughs> that Wheatley very w- felt very happy to throw in the mix, you know, because he, he's he seems like as in Down Terrace, like he very deliberately doesn't want to give you all of the answers. And I do feel satisfied when I listen to a commentary where I was like, OK, I see where he was coming from here, and we'll get to that, I think, after we talk about the movie proper more, and I can bring these things up to you and see what you think, mm-hmm. and if you agree or, you know, or what. So, um, yeah, you might be like, well, maybe your search for answers was an exercise in futility, Watson. Maybe it was. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> so, so who knows? But, yeah, I just, I just wanted to preface our walkthrough or, you know, however we approach the movie itself uh, just with that bit of info. Yeah, I think the thing is, like, my opinion has changed so much watching this movie. Like the yeah. the first time I the first time I finished watching this movie, I was of the opinion like you'll be the same as me. There are certain things that 
when something happens in a movie or you see something in a movie, you're like, aha, <laughs> right? I yeah. know, I know. <laughs> look at me, Mr. Smart Cinephile. <laughs> I understand exactly yeah. what you're putting down <laughs> with your clever placement of this. There are repeated uses of the term when characters speak specifically to G uh, and tell him to essentially wake like wake up wake up was and my first view when it finished I was like that alright this is he's just dreaming isn't he like this is some sort of dream thing he's um, I think his wife tells him um, I think his child at some point tells him and I think Gal also tells him at some point to wake yeah. up and all of that right why are we going back to this over and over again wake up wake up could this be on that and then my second viewing I was I couldn't have been because I went back into that second view and go right so it's all a dream so let's look for dream logic in here and there wasn't any and as a result yeah. of that the the specific things you're talking about where you get scenes which are mirrored from start to end speak more about a journey to something than they do necessarily a dream and that's where I was like alright so it's not a dream alright that's 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 cool but then if someone was to say to me tomorrow kill this is like if Ben Wheatley tomorrow did like an interview and out of nowhere was like at the camera Duncan by the way kill this is about a dream um, oh. I, would, I, I could I could see where he was coming from I'd be like there is okay. ev- there is evidence in there from a couple of scenes that I saw and I'm sure there's plenty more in there more repeat viewings of this one will only yield more in the way of evidence one way or another it'll either completely back up your previous opinion or you'll go down some other rabbit hole uh, which I think is is awesome and I want that I want to constantly be questioning things but yeah I look forward to hearing what you got out of this in terms of what you think Uh, I I certainly will give you my opinion and I can say this right now I almost 100% guarantee on the next watch for both of us that we will not be as resolute in the opinions we have right now (laughs) sure (laughs) and that's the fun that's the fun so there we go everything that we just did there is like my favourite thing that's happened this year so I'm just letting you know any any opportunity to get to get um, to get into into the weeds so to speak with conversations is where I'm at but the, the listeners out there are wanting to hear some kill lists so I say we take a short break I say we throw out a little trailer for um, for the movie, and when we come back, ladies and gents, we are talking about number two on the Ben Wheatley filmography. This is Kill List, his movie from 2011. Myself and Mr. Watson coming back to dissect this movie right after this.
And welcome back, ladies and gents. This is episode number two of season one of Opera Omnia, and we are doing Kill This from 2011. Let me give you some info from the IMDb for this one. It is directed by Ben Wheatley. The writers on the project, Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump. The first of a collaboration we'll be speaking about quite a lot as we move forward. The ah. movie stars Neil Maskell, uh, Mayanna Burning... Harry Simpson, Michael Smiley returning for this movie here, and we'll continue actually. Emma Fryer, Strewn Roger, Esme Foley, Ben Crompton, Gemma Lee Thornton, Robin Hill is in this movie as well, which is nice to know. Zoe Thomas and Gareth Tunley. Now, Gareth Tunley is a guy who I think we, I can never remember exactly if I did mention this before, but if I didn't, let me mention it just now. Gareth Tunley has worked with Ben Wheatley on several several different projects. I think he did some um, camera work as well, and then went off and did his own movie called The Ghoul, which I highly recommend because it exists in that weird kind of esoteric Wheatley-esque space. So it has all the visuals of a Ben Wheatley. Um, but has, and some of the kind of esoterics, but is more kind of like a grounded police story as well. It's a great movie. Arrow video put out a couple of years ago and it kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people. So if you haven't checked it out, check out The Ghoul uh, by Gareth Tunley. So that's cool. Okay. Plugged in that movie. Uh, I, I, in fact, if you're going, if you were going for a, I like double billing. I like imagining a double bill. Um, a good double bill would be um, the Ghoul and a Dark Song. Oh, uh, which okay. I fucking loved the Dark Song. They came at the same yeah. year, so um, kind of different coin, uh, different sides of the same kind of esoteric coin. So. Oh. I love it. That sounds great. Nice. Uh, right, the synopsis for Kill List, though, uh, and I quite like this one because it kind of ticks off the big points, Pulse, once again, not necessarily giving you anything. It says, nearly <laughs> a year after a botched job, a hitman takes on a new assignment with the promise of a big payoff for three killings. What starts off as an easy task soon unravels, sending the killer into the heart of darkness. So, um, I have thought about different ways to approach this movie. I'll tell you, Mr. Watson. I thought we could just... My original one was like, well, we'll just go through the movie. We'll just like, go into everything. And then it suddenly dawned on me that that doesn't necessarily... Like, if you've watched this movie one time, you've done that. It's the second viewing of the movie that I think yields answers yes. to mm -hmm. an extent. So that's how I kind of want to approach it is almost how you would approach it on a second viewing. So I think what we do is we talk narratively about roughly what the movie's about, um, focus on specific scenes within the movie, but then we start taking a step back and talking about actual themes, concepts, and, you know, kind of how we think they shape our interpretation of what actually happens in the movie. The big point for this one is that, very much like the synopsis says here, we are, for the most part of this movie, following Jay. Jay is a former kind of army man turned mercenary, soldier for hire, and we are one year removed from an event that happens uh, in Eastern Europe 
which we are seen as, or we're led to believe, was something that went wrong. Now, there are indications in this movie that it might be very similar, and it's why I would link it within Bruges, something to do with the death of a child. The reason ah. I say that, and the reason I come to that conclusion, is a conversation that happens kind of halfway through the movie between Jay and Gal, where Gal says, uh, you know, well, it's easier than killing a kid, or something along those lines. It's a really kind of strange, jokey sentence to say, you know, that would just come out of the blue, which makes me think the the mistake was a child died. Oh, so okay. That's my that's my thought. Once again, like 25 viewings to kill this, it's not as many as that, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's easily over 10. So uh, wow. over 10 viewings, like, yeah, I love this movie. Fucking love it. Uh, so like that's my, my, my thoughts on it. Uh, G... Uh, you know, he's a lovely family. He's married to Shell, and he has a kid, Sam. And he's he's not really coping with a retired life. Safe to say, he's a bit antsy. One can yeah. see he is he's on like a, a knife's edge with his anger all the way through. The smallest thing will set him off, and it's mostly because he's seen some dark shit, and he has no outlet. He's no killing outlet. Um, he is. Joined for dinner by Gal and his new girlfriend, Fiona, who is far too personable and just kind of like, hi, and like she's very like G interested. She's all about G um, from the moment she arrives and they have what can only be described as the most uncomfortable dinner in the history of the world. And oh, that, yeah. Yep. Well, yep. Like, I don't know about you, um, but have you ever, have you ever been around uh like a friend who's in a relationship and you see your friend and his partner have this massive blow argument and all you want is not to be there (laughs) duncan I'll, i'll do you one i'll do you one better i used to be that couple where that would happen i had this girlfriend years ago who god bless her she was the angriest person i have ever met in my life my friend she and and she just she had a a pretty rough past, so it wasn't. I think she came by some of it honestly, but she would go looking for problems. And it could be it could be us at dinner, and this would happen frequently, unfortunately, in the couple of years that we were together. We'd be sitting there having a nice dinner with our friends, and then I might say, "Oh yeah, I went to go. Uh, we were at Safeway earlier," and then she'd be like, "Uh, it was Walmart." And I'd be like, oh, okay. And then she's holding it against me and glaring and being like, "So uh, what else are you gonna forget?" And I'm like, "What? What? Are we still talking about?" Me saying Safeway instead of Walmart? Uh, anyways, I'm trying to go on with my story. And then she'll just be like, yeah, this he'd probably uh, forget my birthday too. God, why does everybody forget about me? You know what? And then she'll start screaming and I'd just be like, but I didn't forget your birthday and I wouldn't. And oh my God, now I'm sitting here like, you know, and oh my God. And, and now she's yelling and my friends are just going, what are we doing here? They're leaving. Yeah, I've Duncan, I, I've unfortunately been the party host that shows up with the volatile person and uh, has to has to walk uh, away with my tail between my legs. It's, it does, <laughs> there's something, it's, there's there's a, a bit, I think, where, like, if you're not... F- there's a part of you that wants to try and save face in that argument, but the, there's the other part that is fully aware of the fact that it's happening in front of someone else, um, which oh, I think yeah. sometimes, like unfortunately amplifies an argument because you don't want to see to be losing or on the wrong side of that argument which just makes the spectator 
even more uncomfortable because you the, just want to you just want to grab that tablecloth and just rip it out <laughs> and start <laughs> you know what i'm saying i'll tell you this duncan i was sitting here when you said that this is like the most uncomfortable dinner ever i was even thinking to myself while watching this you know i would almost rather step away from this dinner and head over to tony collette's uh, in hereditary <laughs> and sit down for that dinner <laughs> It's the, it's the only other table scene that I can remember in recent memory where I'm like, yep, yep, this is all horrible. Yeah. And 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 take me now, take me now. I don't, I don't, I do not <laughs> want to be here. Um, what was interesting is like Jay flies off the handle on this one, and uh, it's almost as if this gives the green light to Fiona or gives her some sort of evidence of something. But she goes away and. Um, to the audience, weirdly, but uh, some would say foreshadowingly, uh, if that's a word, um, <laughs> goes to their bathroom and draws a symbol on the back of their kind of bathroom mirror. Yes, it's the symbol that's on. It's the symbol that is displayed right at the very beginning of Kill List as well. Uh, it's also on all the artwork and all the stuff. And it's um, for those that don't know what it looks like. It kind of looks like a crosshair, but with a kind of paganistic um, sort of triangle segment drawn in and it's, it, once again fits in with the idea that he's a hitman so cross here but with the, the kind of triangle to make it like feel like almost like a house or like a like a like a being or something yeah or, or maybe even some sort of paganistic symbol where that be like a, a like kind of fertility symbol or a male symbol or something uh, something sharp anyway so um yeah so he after a bit of to and fro in, G essentially lands a gig with Gal. It's a, a series of hits, three hits to be precise. Um, and, you know, the, the he's going to get a bit of cash, gets him out of the house, away from his wife. Um, and this is, you know, this is a, like almost like a dream job for him because it's something he can do well and he's good at it. It gets him back out there and doing it. He's spending time with his best friend, um... And, you know, the, the, the payoff is going to be good for him and his wife because, you know, the, the indication is maybe that money is, is starting to slowly dwindle. Um, yeah. the, the interesting thing is the, the three targets are a librarian, a priest and an elected official, an MP, member of parliament, um, which, once again, I think there's specific reasons for that list because they're all art archetypes of society and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that as well but yeah essentially he's going to kill these none of these stories like none of these people are just plain hits though each of them come with a bit of baggage and oh, yeah. each of them don't go the way you think they would go like let me put it this way Mr. Watson you are hired as an assassin Right, international assassin, yeah. man of mystery. You're already a man of mystery, but you're now an international man of mystery. <laughs> yeah, baby, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you travel across to Scotland to uh, assassinate a certain Duncan McLeish podcaster. Um, <laughs> and you arrive at my house and you, you like come in the door right now while I'm recording and I turn around and see you with a gun. You, you know, you've got the gun there. You're going to take care of some business. I turn around... I'll tell you right now, the first thing I am not telling you is to kill me. It's, uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not thanking you for anything, right? Right. Uh, I'd like, if anything, I'm saying, who are you and go away. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. That's, that's, so there's, there's, there's a weirdness to it. It's like these people are expecting 
the hit and are thankful for it. Like yeah. almost like they are maybe pawns of part of some sort of initiation, maybe, or uh, believe in something as a higher power above themselves and their part within the game. Um, so this builds up. And the, the more that G gets into it, the more disorientated he gets because he's not used to this, so it makes him feel kind of woozy, plus the people he's killing all have these little secrets, and these little secrets are, for lack of a better word, yucky. (laughs) Oh yeah. Kind of not nice. And um, at a certain point, his grip on what is actually happening and his understanding of who potentially has hired him starts to shatter. Uh, The movie itself culminates in the kind of disintegration of him and Gal's relationship. What's interesting about this movie is the only time you actually ever see G give full remorse for a killing in this movie is when he kills Gal, which I think is really interesting considering all the other people he kills, in particular the end. The only one is the guy who's almost like his his companion through his journey. He genuinely shows remorse at that point. But when he, you know, returns uh, back to the homestead, so to speak, you know, to to try and track down what is going on, the people that have hired him, etc., he uh, comes across what you would call maybe some sort of cult-like or paganistic ceremony, um, which ultimately leads to an indoctrination ceremony where, you know, he's, he's kind of drugged up a little bit, he's delirious, and he has to... And you made mention specifically to a scene which this foreshadows, he has to fight an entity known as the Hunchback, stabs the shit out of the Hunchback. And oh, yeah. yeah oh, it goes, it goes raw. Because that's what I love about this movie. There are moments where, like, you're like, right, we're just going through the, the kind of the mundane circumstances of being a hitman. Like, the kill is the job, but everything that goes into the kill is kind of boring. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's, 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 like, it's like any job, really. Like, the, the the bits that are incredible that we all love are few and far between. Um, the journey to get to those bits are the majority of your job. and Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no one really loves them. Um, and, yeah, upon the reveal of who the Hunchback actually is, we find that it's his family, it's his wife and his child. And this is the final... Uh, kind of part of some sort of ascension ceremony to something which we never find out. Yeah. That's kill list like on a first view. And I think that's what loses people as people are like, huh, (laughs) right? Well, that makes sense. (laughs) Well, so he just, so he gets hired from some people that want him to kill some folk and then kill his family and wear like a, a straw mask and yeah and yeah that's that is right that is what happens in this movie yeah. but there's a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes I think and that's when it gets really interesting specifically from like you could take an interpretation of this movie that like almost everyone is in on this apart from Jay right Jay's the guy that doesn't know and as soon as he is it's almost like Fiona's there on a scout mission, and as soon as she sees the the vol kind of the volatility of what he does at the dinner table, he she essentially marks him for this ceremony by putting that 
that symbol behind the mirror. And then yeah. from that point, that is him almost entering like a large uh, ritual, essentially. That's where the comparisons, I think, to the Wicker Man are kind of apt. Like from the moment Edward Woodward arrives on the island, regardless how many times he's told to leave. And to be honest, Jay is told he can quit whenever he wants during this. He doesn't have to... To, to continue through the hits if he wants. He's going to do it anyway, but Edward Woodward's told to leave the island a couple of times and doesn't do it. And as a result, he ends up being the architect of his own demise. Um, and it's kind of the same here. Like, from the moment that symbol is drawn in the back of the mirror, his fate is sealed um, but by, you know, by, by birthright. You know what I mean? Like everything yeah. he does here now is is part of a grand plan, a great a grand design. This great design that he is now sequestered to to complete and will complete because of the very nature of who he is. They they know who they know he's not going to quit on doing the job because they know what situation he's in. They know he's going to. They know every step before he knows it. And no, I think that there's something like. Even if the gore and the end scene doesn't kind of creep you out about this movie, something that creeps me out more than anything is the idea that things are preordained. Like, I, I, I can't, you know, it gets under my skin. I like to think that if I decide to lift the glass and drink from it or decide not to lift the glass and drink from it, that's a 50-50 choice. Um, but in a movie like this... Whether I lift the glass or don't lift the glass, it's still a Plassey's demon, isn't it? It's already yep. It's already it's already foretold. It's already scripted I, out. So I, I was just about to say Laplace's demon, my friend. <laughs> you know, and I did read a bit of uh, uh, trivia here where I guess when Fiona befriends Shell and starts coming over to the house a lot, Wheatley says he likes to imagine that she's carved little runes and symbols all over the yeah. inside of the house so as to strengthen the cult's sway over them. Yeah, so, I, I love yeah. that as well. Because you, you imagine that's... There's there's something specifically... There's something, like, nefarious and specifically insidious about the idea of someone using the place that you feel the, the safest, your home, as a beacon or a tool to further a cause which is against the very nature of the security and safety that your home is supposed Ooh. to be there for. You know, it's like a, it's almost yeah. a perversion of what home stands for. Like home is about comfort and safety. Uh, the ability for someone to kind of manifest anything that would pervert that is something I think is nefarious and insidious and, and, and creepy. Um, which I wow. kind of, once again, yeah. Kind of love that. It's that symbolism we spoke about earlier. Um, I, I specifically said about things like my first view of this movie was all about the the idea of it being like, is he dreaming? Is this a you know like he has his fight with his wife? He's very very drunk, and then everything that comes beyond this is some sort of weird fucking. Like, like strange, bizarre wish fulfillment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I've, I've had a, a fight with my wife, and now I'm gonna kill a lot of people in my dreams, plus my family, yeah. and fuck it, take over the world yeah. as the Antichrist. Um, we've all had those dreams. So, I mean, it's not just it's not just me. Uh, but yeah, I think there's like, there was, and it's more down to the fact that the repeat the the kind of repetitive nature of characters asking him to wake up 
and yes, I'm like that seems to it it feel it felt too on the nose. Like when I first watched it, I was like, no, it makes sense. And then on the second watch, I was like, no, this is totally a ritual. I mean, when we think about the the people that the people he's contracted to kill, right? One is a priest, right? Who is the, the you know is the gateway to God, essentially. Yeah. So by killing him, he's killing off the gateway to God, right? Or what we yeah. would consider is the, the the most pure and holy person. Although you know, <laughs> if you do yeah. any sort of reading nowadays, that you know that that image has been sullied for quite some time. Sure, um, sure. And you know they don't shy away from that in this movie. Um, no. You know he kills a librarian. Librarians are by their nature the keeper of knowledge. You know the the are the the arbiters the 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 voice and mind of knowledge. They are the people that direct you to, or you know, hold the books to anything you need to know uh, before the internet. Uh, you know, what I mean that's 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 their job. And then you have the the MP. The MP is the voice of the people, the elected official, the politics, the decision maker, the planner. Um, it's, it's this kind of third archetype character that is is kind of sacrificed. Now, like I said before, each of these people, not necessarily a nice person. Um, yeah, and they all have their their backstory or their vices, and they all accept their death in the way that you would kind of expect them. Well, not expect them to, but if they were uh, kind of, if they were knowing. There were knowing accomplices to this sort of uh, cult sacrifice, believing that their job elevated the cause, then you can imagine their responses being that of it. But to me, there's like a really strong image that that's what the movie's kind of going towards, if that makes sense. is like we, we have these, we have these like archetype kind of pillars of society in one capacity or the other and these are the people he's going for this isn't the I mean he's not going after the child molester who happens to be you know an MP or something like that it's he's yeah. going after the MP who he finds out is X or you know he's going after the you know the librarian who happens to be into like like ridiculous hardcore porn or yeah. you, you know what I mean like as, as a librarian first and foremost and it's only through his investigations at the time that he finds out what is if he was like assassinating this guy with a rifle from a distance you would never know that it would still just be the librarian yep. and I you know I, I kind of like that about the it almost the things he finds justifies the kill but he's paid to make the kill regardless so yeah. it's almost all it's almost in part to get the audience to go along with it, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, definitely. And Duncan, I, I am loving what you're saying here. Okay, I gotta go back. Well, we gotta go back for a second here, buddy. Yes. To when you were talking about the the wake up motif. Mm. And what I appreciate about that, because I did not notice that. And so as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking, okay. So we have this, you know, people telling Jay to, you know, wake up. His wife says it, you know, Gal says it, and it, it is there. Now that I think about it, I remember these scenes. And what we have here is the awakening of a character and the recipes of this ritual mm -hmm. that you just spelled out, basically, are the key and the pathway 
to that awakening, that enlightenment, that that ascension. And so in that way, these three kills are yet are, are great examples of this recipe for this ritual by first killing God, by cutting your ties to the past, which is what the librarian represents. You know, killing God is what the priest represents. The cutting ties to anything before, you know, would be represented by, you know, the librarian. So killing him and then by killing the MP, which is, you know, representative of a system, you know, mm -hmm. governmental system by killing God, your past and your system of government it, that leaves you basically in the hands of this cult. It's it, it's a the ritual is basically him not realizing that he's delivering himself to them fully and completely. And when you think about what you said about the desecration of the home, and it's basically, <laughs> the, he has no home anymore at the end of this. Yeah. Except it, in the cult, if, yeah. the, if they his, decide it, to keep him around. He cuts his earthly and familial Ooh. ties as well right at the end. You know, he kills yeah. his family. The, the, the only other aspect that, you know, has... has he kills his seed. He kills his legacy. <laughs> you know, he kills yep. his child um, and his wife as well. It's, it's the as it yeah. It's like, essentially it's the the breakdown and systematic surgical removal of everything that that makes him him. If you yep. know what I mean? It's a, yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm loving that. I'm loving this. Like the, the other <laughs> thing you were talking about, um, like mirroring scenes. So like, there's specifically the mirrored scene of the the kind of sword play at the beginning. Yeah. To the stabbing at the end, which is really, 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 really well done. Um, I mean, you could also see as well, uh, like, Gal ends up kind of butchered. <laughs> kinda, oh, yeah. You know, feeling a little bit bloody. Not too dissimilar from the rabbit, like, at the beginning of the movie as well. Oh, yeah. So the rabbit ends up... I mean, they, they're left in a similar position as well. Almost like those two are, you know, kind of... Uh, like bookends of a, a similar journey as well, you know. There, there, I think there's, like, direct symbolism about the fact that, you know, G uh, finally confronts the you know, the cult after exiting a tunnel. I mean, it's like, is it, oh. on, the, is it on the nose sweetly? Maybe. <laughs> like, or, <laughs> or maybe that's, maybe just like the idea of the tunnel. Uh, I, I don't know, but there's, there's a bit of that in there as well. The, the, there's also things as well to do with, you know, how much is, you know, like the, the conversations you're talking about with Fiona and his wife when she starts befriending, I mean, how much of this is not only symbols in there, but how much of this is, you know, Fiona convincing his wife to be part of the ritual? Because the way she reacts, you know, like being allowed to be dressed up as a hunchback and, you know, like, not like she could very easily just not, you know, interact with him in a way which feels menacing uh, or and or lift the, the, the gown up or fall over so the gown exposes that she and the kid are underneath and it almost makes you wonder if maybe she's been brought into it as well which you I, know, I love I love that idea as well is maybe like you through conversations are convinced that you're huh. doing something for the better good you know what I mean I, I hadn't considered that because I guess my impression was that the scene where Shell laughs after Jade takes down her and, and the, the child as, as the hunchback you know, it's gotten a lot of people, yeah, thinking that she was in on it the whole time. I have heard this before. Um, I don't know if I'm quite there yet, though, because when we see her without Jay, 
uh, in in their in that house, what is that that cottage? You know, yep. she's gunning down cultists, and she's not part of uh, she's not within Jay's line of sight. And so, I, I guess what what I had heard in the commentary was that Wheatley had intended for that laughing scene to be like her laughing ironically at the fact that her husband just killed her. Yeah. And so, I don't know if that's meant to imply any more uh, like uh, uh, anything about involvement, but I do know that. I guess he had wanted to shoot the scene as she's laughing like, oh, this guy. So do you think there's a possibility that she was drugged too and didn't know who she was fighting? He wasn't a mask. It's, it's straight. You know what I mean? It's, it, there's... Yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I, I don't think she ever defends herself. Like, You know what I mean? I don't oh, think does she... he have a cut on himself, Duncan? I, I think he does. Yeah, he it, it, it does. It, like, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't at any point do what I like see if I had like let's put it this way you have your small child strapped to your back yeah <laughs> like do you fight like <laughs> she fights I I'll have to see the scene again I think I think that 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 is a good point and I tend to wonder if it could be because she's super drugged up I wonder if that's a possibility there because but if not and, and this is one of the one of the I guess you could say the ambiguities that make yes. this scene funny to interpret. Mm-hmm. I just think that her gunning down the cultists in the cottage maybe speaks to a lack of involvement. Uh, what do you think about that? It could be, yeah. Certainly, you could also look at it, if we're talking about mirroring, uh, which, I mean, this movie does a great job of doing it. I mean, uh-huh. their their argument at the beginning is, you know, two steps away from Jay saying he's going to kill her anyway, isn't yeah. he? He gets so angry, so wouldn't this be the ultimate bookend in uh, a conversation that begins at the very beginning which you know all but lays out the fact that Jay you know threatens <laughs> threatens her life etc would lead yeah. to the end of that journey would be the ultimate irony would be him killing her so yeah that laugh could very well be the you know well look where we ended up you know of course you killed me not these fucking you know yeah. <laughs> not all these cultists surrounding me who would obviously be the person that's supposed to love and care and look after the protector of the family is the yeah. one that kills us because you know you've <laughs> you've always kind of been on that whatever it happened to him in Sarajevo or wherever it was has Kiev. has been Kiev um has been the you know has stuck with him so much has warped him but then I love this idea of people talk about how he's changed since he come back but has he ever t- like we don't get to see that in there but part of me likes to think that all these things that have happened are just stepping stones of Jay's transformation anyway kind of pre the movie starting mm. and, and certainly post mm-hmm. where things going as well because there's no indication like, like real on the nose explanational indication as to who the cultists are actually what what the cultists are actually trying to do sure out with this is is this just an indoctrination measure or is this actually he is like for all intents and purposes like pay him on from like hereditary uh-huh. what, what is this you know what I mean is this is this he is now their new messiah or is this he you know this is how people get into this club they target people and then put them through a series of trials to to be worthy of being a member of the cult it's never it's never really stressed and you could also say that maybe the the maybe the people that are dying at the hands of the the cultists here 
are maybe not even members of the cult. Maybe they've just been blackmailed horrifically that death is the better option, is the more viable option. And this is the grey that I'm talking about. Like, the next view and I do this movie, I could be like, well, no one's in the cult, you know, apart from the, the cultists. <laughs> and yeah, maybe like the, all this horrible, like, hardcore pornography and all, all the, you know, the stuff the MPs involved with and the priests involved with. Well, you know, maybe these people are specifically you know, the, the 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 kind of byproduct of they've been caught doing horrible things and being given the, the option of we will destroy your life in the public and because all these people yeah. have like a degree of prominence, some more than others, but we will destroy your reputation or you know, we'll give you an out and that out is a hitman will come and kill you. It'll be quick. Um and that's why they're thankful for it. There's there's lots of different ways to look at things. I think yeah. The beauty of the movie is the journey. And that's what I was talking about, about tone. Like, from that argument at the beginning, this movie then, even through the mundanity of, like, sitting in cars and sitting in hotels and waiting for the next things to happen, the movie, uh, like, wears this kind of shroud, this blanket of uncomfortable tension right through at the end. There, I remember the first time I saw this movie and about 40 minutes into it, I just wanted it to be over. I wanted the movie like to finish because I just didn't feel good. I just felt like <laughs> I felt the way I felt the first time I watched um, a, a Blue Velvet, the David oh. Lynch movie. Like there's like the more the darker that movie gets, and the more you start to get into the seedy underbelly of of what's happening with the characters and the story in this part of Tim the more I just don't want to be there and I don't want to be watching. <laughs> like, but yeah. I can't I can't tear my eyes away from it because I want to know how the story fi- finishes. But, I, 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 you know, just everything that's happening on the screen is, is so uncomfortable. And, like, for me, Kill List builds to a certain point and then a hammer comes out. And when oh. that hammer comes out, the movie changes totally. <laughs> oh, yeah, it does. That, that narrative shift in the second act there blew me away again on this second watch uh-huh. yeah it's, it's so you know, dark <laughs> it, it is very dark and you know I, I gotta i gotta go back to the relationship you know you were you were talking about the relationship between jay and shell and uh you know i i, I love okay how what's what, what struck me was just how on this viewing wheatley managed especially after watching down terrace Mm. is how Wheatley managed to capture that same rawness that made Down Terrace work as well as it did. You know, that uncomfortably intimate portrayal of Jay's and Shell's marriage as well. You know what? Even with his uh, as uh, with his friendship with Gal, yeah. you know, we, it, it's, it's it's oftentimes, man, it's like something we're not supposed to be seeing. And but then in contrast to that, you know, Wheatley ups the ante and provides, you know, a glossier film overall. That's got, you know, this bigger narrative scope that we're talking about here than in Down Terrace. And so in that way, the film is able to bounce back and forth between the world of the mundane and the fantastical without it seeming tonally jarring. And you, you, you get absolute you, you, you absolutely get why Jay goes back to work as a hitman because his home life problems demand it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so but then, it, you know, and so in that way, we see those mundanities, you know, in the sitting in the car and waiting for the hit to happen. And then, bam, when that hammer, like you said, comes out. We are in another world, and the film begins that downward spiral toward Jay's uh, ultimate, I guess, uh, ascension and so awakening. Do you, do you think, like, because Gal, like, when Gal's gutted 
at the end mm-hmm. of this movie, which, like we said before, is the only time that Jay really feels remorseful and or struggles with with the morality of what he's doing. But mm-hmm. do we think Gal's... Do we think that Gal has essentially highlighted to Fiona that this could be a potential person? Because Gal seems like he's willing the death to happen like the MP, like the librarian and like the priest. So do we think he's been involved all along? Is he the, okay. almost like the, the, the kind of, the, the watchman, the journeyman taking him from job to job to make sure that he goes through with it in a particular order, a particular way. And then once his job is done, he is the next sacrifice. Because this is like, if we're talking about all the different pillars of what makes you, you know, like a quote-unquote whole person, your attachment yeah. to the spiritual, your attachment to the, the kind of past and knowledge, the attachment to the power structure, um, your, your 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 family itself, but your friends as well. That idea of your kind of the, the bonds that we build with the people that are not our blood relatives, but you know, in a lot of respects, we look upon as closer than our blood. Um, oh yeah. Do we think that is he is he a part? Because it's the bit that always I, I flip flop on that more than I flip flop on any other aspect about the movie. Uh-huh. Because as we're going through the killings in the movie, it kind of feels like Gal is unaware of the full background of what's happening. But at the end, he succumbs by by speaking to Jay very much in the same manner that any of the victims have as well by willing the death. So it's like, is he in it or is he not? I I do flip-flop so much. Duncan, that is a really good point. And I think Wheatley sets it up in such a way where you can have that interpretation and not be wrong. Mm. I'll just tell you how I interpreted it. And again, I don't think... That just as if you were to interpret the opposite way, I don't know that it could that you can necessarily poke holes in either one that would sink the ship. But here's just what I was thinking. Now, when you mentioned that Gal's death mirrored the rabbit, I hadn't thought of that. Mm. And so in that sense, we are seeing that both of these are a necessary sacrifice to some end. Now, as for Gal's involvement, though, um, I, I like where you're coming from in that, you know what, if he is involved... We can see what his role is in keeping Jay in check, making sure he's doing the jobs. And they don't have to give Gal all of the info. He can go in not knowing a whole lot. That, that That's fine. It's You know, he can be on a need-to-know basis. But my interpretation was that he was thanking him for the mercy kill, and maybe it was supposed to mirror the other thank yous that he'd gotten, but this was maybe the only genuine one, just like it's the only time we see genuine remorse from Jay yeah. when he kills Gal. And so maybe it was a pure moment in the film where that was like just this little moment that mirrors the things that the cult are doing, but is pure in its own way because they're they're buddies and he's not involved in the cult, but he's thanking him the same way the others did, but for an actual like thank you for putting me out of my misery type thing. So I guess I didn't see him as being involved, but uh and just and just being as blind as Jay is about all this, but I can see where a case t- can be made. Mm-hmm. It's it's a oh. weird yeah I love I love that interpretation as well. It's it's one that I do. It's the it's the one bit in the movie that every time I watch it, I'm like, right. Well, next viewing, I'm gonna really watch yeah. Gal and see exactly what he does because I mean, Gal's the 
Gal is the one that introduces Fiona to the house. You know, he's the one that brings them together. And but that could just be she could have went to him to get to Jay. Just using him. Yeah, Yeah. of course, of course. It plays both ways. It plays perfect both ways. And to be honest with you, there's no one way that feels more satisfying than the other, which is that grey that I, I talk about that I love so much in movies, is that, you know, I'm fully aware that the next time I watch it, I, I might flip-flop back again. And that's yeah. that's fine. I do love it. I, I love the the inevitability of the whole movie. You know, this I, yep. th- once again, this idea that... And, and it's this, once again, it's comparisons to Wicker Man are apt in that respect of... From the moment you start this journey, there is only one natural outcome. And yeah, there's plenty of variables in there where things might go awry, but we're fairly sure. Like, for example, if Jay doesn't kill the librarian, then he's not worthy of the... You know, he's not worthy of the position. He's not the right person then. So there's a a blight as faith. So it's that way where, like, I don't have any faith. I'm a complete heathen, um, like, <laughs> and I, I wholly accept that. And I, I wish I could have faith. I wish I could, sure. like, my my. I've got family members that are devout in their religions that they believe in, and I look at them, and they are so supremely confident and so sure that what they believe is what they believe. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you right now that, like, I I struggle with whether or not Gal was in on it or isn't. Like, and that's just a movie. You ask me about existential questions about reality, existence, and the afterlife. What chance have I got? (laughs) Like, I've zero fucking (laughs) chance. I've zero, zero, zero chance. Um, So, but I I love the... Because this cult... You know, whether or not this is the first time they've tried this or if this is the, oh. the you know, the tenth time they've tried it, each time they will do this will be met with the same level of faith. You know, that yeah. the person that they've picked is right and they will do the challenges they will and if they don't, they're not the right person. And there's something very absolute about that and very clean. You know, it's either yes they are or no they're not. They're either worthy or not. And yep. there is no kind of was it um this is the Yoda line. Uh, there is no try. Um, ah. Yeah, there is that thing about well, you either do it or you don't. You either are worthy and are our um, new messiah or whatever he's going to be, or you're you're not because you didn't do. And we will put the we'll put the pawns out on the, the the chessboard, and it's up to you to take them. And you either do them or you don't. And I, I, I love that kind of resolute finality to the story like it, it goes exactly if you are the cult this plays out exactly like you thought it was going to play and you end up with exactly what you want at the end of this we don't know what that looks like and I think the beauty of movies like these is we should never Rosemary's Baby we should never see you know Rosemary's Baby growing up we should leave it with the point that Rosemary yeah. has fully accepted that she's going to look after that baby much to her dismay fully aware of the knowledge that he will destroy the earth you know roll the credits <laughs> like, <laughs> you know like you know like the 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 the, the beauty of the wicker man is that Lord Summerisle is you know essentially burning Edward Woodward to bring the harvest back after years of not having the harvest 
and he's putting blind faith in that sacrifice. There is nothing to say that the crop will grow the following year. And to be yeah. honest, if it doesn't grow the following year, it's probably him and the wicker man next. So there's that kind of... <laughs> there's that thing. It's the same with the uh, Midsommar, when you look at that, or even yeah. to an extent... Um, a, a Hereditary, which well, I, I use those two movies because I feel like they all exist in the same sort of universe of things going where we, we never see beyond the point of Peamon arriving, which doesn't mean it's essentially the end of Rosemary's Baby, or yeah. we never really <laughs> see what happens to Danny after the hut goes up in flames either. We don't need to see that because no. that's that part of the... If you imagine reading the Bible... Um, one of the books in the Bible would talk about the ascension of an important person. It's not. It's not good. You would move on to the next book to find out what happened next. Uh, <laughs> yeah, in, indeed. Well, well said. I like that. And you know, speaking to what you're talking about about the the uh, just the inevitabilities here. I mean, that's what is so heavy about this movie, and especially when you're watching it the second time and every subsequent viewing, you're just looking at. Uh, you know, I mean, I guess you could do that with any movie in that, oh, you know where the end's going. But these movies that you have mentioned, Midsummer, Hereditary, Wicker Man, this one, all operate in that whole idea that not only, okay, not only are we watching the movie in the sense that we know how things are going to end, but certain characters in the movie itself sort of have a knowledge of the end. And mm -hmm. so to watch this clueless protagonist on that journey toward that inevitability that's what makes it so heavy and especially you would think okay this guy's a badass hitman he, he surely he's going to be in control of the situation even when he starts gunning down cultists like crazy it still ends up the the way that i think the cult had always planned in the first place there he is and he's there it fit the role that they want and there was nothing it's almost like the man was there anything he could have done and maybe yeah. but he, it's that's not the way it went you know? yeah I, 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 it's, it's, I don't know. There's, I, I, the more I think about these things, the more I kind of love the way the stories are told. What, what I also love about this movie as well, there's two things that, you know, we, we'll, we'll touch on uh, uh, in a way which I think speaks a lot to Wheatley as a director and also... Um, the ability for him to pick people that continually just get better with time. Um, if you mm -hmm. look back, uh, we were talking about, well, this movie feels like just a more professional outfit, you know, just overall, and it just looks, you know, better. And yep. I mean, budget-wise, this has more money spent on it, but it's still not even, it's like half a million, this movie okay. costs. So, I mean, it wasn't a huge amount of money that was oh. spent on it. This has got the same director of photography. This is the same DP that's huh. doing this movie. In fact, okay. what I'm going to be super excited about when we, we've got to do this is, uh, if I am not mistaken, um, the same DP has worked with Ben Wheatley on every single movie. Oh, so, wow. And the budgets only go up. So, like, every movie you're going to see more money and you're going to see what feels like a different... Like, every movie feels like a different... Uh, you know, DP, but they're all the same. <laughs> like, wow, that's that's a cool bit of information. I really like that. That's so. Can I ask you something about Wheatley's approach to the story? I, I want your take on this. Go for what, it. 
how do you feel about Wheatley's? Because I have certain questions. You know, obviously, we know we because this is the way the narrative is set up. But do you all the questions that I have arise due to Wheatley's deliberate decision to keep us in the dark on certain things? You know, and the same for Down Terrace. He he kept us in the dark about a lot of things. And, you know, in certain respects here in Kill List, I'm fine with that sort of ambiguity. I had no problems with it whatsoever. I don't need everything spelled out for me. You know, say the incident in Kiev. I don't need to know what happened or whether or not Fiona was really outside Jay's hotel waving at him. I don't need to know that. You know, was it a dream? Was it was she really there for some reason? I I don't know. I'm fine not knowing or, you know, even knowing what exactly sort of videos it is that the librarian character deals with that, you know, set Jay off and got him going off the list. You know, I'm fine filling in the blanks myself. But, you know, Duncan, I'm kind of wondering, are you okay with the amount of ambiguity there is? Do you like filling in the blanks yourself more than being uh, handed the answers? What, 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 do you, what do you think about that? Because the commentary did provide answers to questions I had. And I, I don't know if you've heard the commentary, but do you need the commentary to make you feel better about anything? Or are you fine with the way that uh, Wheatley formed the story and those vague aspects and facets? What do you think? So I think there's, there's to me, there's... There's a time and a place for both, which is a totally non-committal on the fence answer. Um, (laughs) Sure, sure. I personally enjoy movies that are deliberately ambiguous. And I've gotten that way with age, which is the weird thing. Uh, The older I get, the less I want things explained, um, which should feel like it should be the other way around. Like when you're young, you shouldn't really care what the answer is. You should just go along with it. And the older you get, the more you should want answers because you don't really want to have to think. Um, you want kind of just, <laughs> and I, I've went the other way, but I think it's mirrored in a lot of respects my taste in movies. Like, mm. the, like I, uh, in the last like 20 years have got more into what I class as art house and this is not art house but I've, I've got more into art house because I like the idea of uh, coming to my own decisions and own conclusions about things and that works one of two ways either works in such a way where I feel completely happy and resolute with my ideas about exactly what's happening on the screen yeah. or I walk out with a vague understanding of what I think might be going on, but to be honest with you, you know, I will then deep dive online. And I don't do it with all movies. Like, I've never deep dived with with, with Kill List online. I'm okay. sure there are loads of articles out there, and I, I dare say there will be explanational videos all over YouTube, and it, well, I think the movie means this, and I think the movie means that, with tons of anecdotal evidence. I'm sure about that. There are other yeah. movies where, like, when I watched uh, Panos Cosmotos's uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow for the first time, I was like, oh, what the fuck did I just watch? Like, <laughs> I loved it, and I think it might be a statement against society. And then I did lots of reading online, and it was all these psychological terms and analysis, and really got like, deep-dived heavily into that and felt a lot better about myself coming out of that read. I'm sure Wheatley, on the commentary, which I haven't heard yet, but I, now that you've mentioned... For some reason, I've never listened to a Wheatley commentary, and I don't know why, because I have been oh. to 
three screenings of weekly movies where he's done cues and he's in fact I've asked him questions twice um, what yeah yeah I've met him twice he's a lovely guy um, uh-huh. that's, that's badass dude uh, he, he tours with his movies in the UK so when he's releasing a new movie he does he tours up and down the UK like a, a band would tour an album so okay, he makes a yeah. stop at all the major cities plays one of their kind of indie cinemas and will do a huge Q&A where he'll answer tons of questions and give out freebies at the end mm-hmm. um, for all his movies so I you know I, I saw um uh, a field in England that way. I saw uh, High Rise and wow. A, uh, sorry, I've seen four. Yeah, I've seen, uh, field in England, uh, High Rise, Free Fire, and Happy Birthday, uh, Happy New Year, Colin Bernstein, all that way with him doing things. And you know, he's he will answer that. He's very open about how he does things. He very rarely answers questions about narrative uh-huh. when it comes to those Q's and A's it's always about how you know he chose the area for you know shooting the movie or how why cast a certain person in a role um, so part of me is like yeah I would love to go through and listen to his bits and bobs about that and I don't necessarily think it would diminish my watch of it a further time but mm-hmm. I think one of the enduring the enduring joys of a movie like Kill List for me is that, like, I, I, I never feel... I think I could even... I think Ben Wheatley could sit opposite me and tell me frame by frame exactly what is meant in the story and what everything uh. means in it, and I would still watch it the following time with the, right, well, you know, is Gal with them or isn't he? And yeah. Is his wife involved or is she not? Is she drugged at the end? Does that laugh sure. sympathetic, ironic, tragic? You know, like, yeah. I, 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 I never know. But that's not to say that's... It's the weird thing about it is Wheatley gets a free pass with that where other directors don't. Other directors, okay. I will, like, actively sit down and read articles and listen to like commentaries and do videos and all the rest. I mean, from from your perspective, does that satisfy you a movie like Kill List though? Or is it like is the fact that Wheatley gives you just enough without giving you like he gives you the crumbs without giving you the sandwich, is that enough for a movie like this? Or do you feel like there are certain things in here where you're like, I don't need it spoon-fed to me, but just yeah. a little bit of detail in this part might help. Because it's what everyone comes... Like, the people that don't like this movie come back to the... Well, I don't know. I'm not a fucking clue what was going on with that movie. And when it finished, sure. I was more confused than I was when I started. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that's... Do you feel that his choice to do that movie that specific way with that sparse detail is detrimental to the movie? Or do you think uh, as a movie and a director like he is with the knowledge that you have of him, that's just a case of he doesn't care? (laughs) Which is the opinion I constantly get with Ben Wheatley is he kind of makes movies for himself and it's a carpenter approach, you know what I mean? Where he's like that, fuck it. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a that's a good question, Duncan. And I'll say this: there are only two scenes that, by the way, these don't these things don't bring my rating down. But there are two scenes where I wish there had been a little more some some sort of exposition to 
help me out just a little and I'll okay. So and how about this? How about we do this? I have a couple trivia bullet points here and let's let's get your reaction to this cuz I'd like to know what you think uh as I tell you what I think. So in Ben Wheatley's commentary on this film, he explains uh a few things and that that really helped and and so one of these was that the triumphant man that Jay shoots first during the scene where you know, they 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 first see the cult hanging in that bride. I guess that man was supposed to be the MP who we, you know, we viewers don't actually see in the movie, but that was supposed to be him. And I guess Wheatley says he regrets not making that clear to the viewers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what do you think? Would would you have liked some line where they're watching him with their sniper rifles and he goes, that's the MP and then everything plays out? Or were you fine, you know, with that not being mentioned? See, I'm fine with it not being mentioned, okay. but the the other part of me feels like, yeah, I don't I'd see that. That's the sort of detail where I don't think for either in or out, it sure it, it makes an impact. If you know what I mean, sure. Okay, how about this? How about this? Uh, it's quickly mentioned that there, you know, this cult is going through uh, what was the word? The uh, reconstruction of sorts. Remember that they're in the hotel and they're in that meeting, and the cult people tell them, "Well, we don't know. It's a cult. It's the people who." have hired them to do the job, tell them that they're going through a reconstruction. And I guess in an early, ver- an early version of the script, we were supposed to find out that there were two warring factions within this cult, and these cult members that we see, uh, that we meet, want to use Jay and Gal as, I guess, instruments to overtake the other side, I guess. So what do you think? Would, would, would that exposition have maybe ruined the, the sort of mysterious facet to the cult? Yeah, see, I think you know, like that's a like an operational explanation which takes away from the kind of esoterical feel of the movie. Okay. You know what I mean? I, I agree. Like, I like, but to be honest with you, I think you could put that in there and make an equally interesting movie, though. Like you have that aspect in there; it changes the the, the journey to the end. I think um, that's what Wheatley felt too. That, yeah, that's why maybe he him. took that out. Yeah, I'm with him on that. Okay, how about this? Uh, two more points. Uh, two more quick points here. So, w- I guess the fight with the hunchback in the commentary, uh, Wheatley says that there was originally a big speech given by the high priest of the cult describing what's going on and why and what particularly Jay will gain by killing the hunchback. And I guess Wheatley thought it was an unnecessary, you know, one again, uh, unnecessary exposition. He cut it. And so, would you have wanted? you know, a quick speech before the fight starts. Like, you know, nothing too crazy, but just this is what you have to gain. This is what's going on. Or do you like that we just get thrown into it? See, the, the, I'd be on the other side. I would, I love, like, see when, I, I love, like, blind, like, in, in movies, blind devotion to something. Like, uh-huh. blind worship and fall. Like, th- to me, you know, you could have benefited from that. I think if anything, that grims the cult in more of a, a cult feel by giving these these speeches which sound, you know, tantamount to lunacy, but delivered in such a way where you're like, well, you know, their convictions and their belief are, yeah. are such a, you know, such a, well, they believe it, and look, look how he's talking about it, so yeah, let's let's do it. So yeah, I, I mean, I would have left that in. Okay, and the, I guess the last one is one I already mentioned, but I guess when, when Shell laughs at the end, she says, on the commentary, she's there too, and the actress, uh, beautiful woman, by the way, my mm-hmm. goodness. Anyway, <laughs> she is, I guess, said that she played it. She played that scene like it was written. And she seemed like she was kind of like hemming and hawing, like she didn't want to come right out and say. But then Wheatley was like, oh, he just, all right, let, let me just explain this. And I guess that, you know, like like I said before, you know, to you and the listeners, 
his whole thing was that it was an ironic laugh, like, oh, God, like, this this is how I'm dying, that it was, you know, and, and I think you, and I didn't understand how to take that when I heard that, but yeah. you qualified it really well when you talked about the scene where they're fighting and you can, you know, and he he's so close to, you know, just wanting to take her out, you know, in that, that heat of the moment before, you know, they inevitably make up again. And so you sort of, you, you really... Uh, got my wheels turning on how this mirrors that in sort of the sense of unintentional wish fulfillment. You know what I mean? And so yeah. the, the implication though, was that she, she was not a part of the cult. Uh, so I think that was, I think that's what they were implying there. So do you like, would you have liked some bit of explanation, maybe her not to laugh or maybe that that's clarified. She says something and we go, Oh wow. She wasn't part of this and she was blinded or something. Would you have wanted a little more there? Or do you think that vague laugh opens up your your your, your view and, and and can uh, you know, you know help you make the interpretation you want? Where are you more comfortable with that scene? It's interesting because like talking through you on this has made me lean more towards the the explanation on the commentary. Not only because of the like we were saying the wish fulfillment from the beginning, but the idea of the fact that she doesn't behave like she's not thankful. No. To die. Like, so, like, all the other ones have thanked her. The, the laugh could be that that of not not only irony, but, like, of, like, an absurdist view of what has happened. Yeah, when she's always disappointed with him anyway. Yeah. So it's just, it's kind of just like, oh, this fucking guy. Yeah, but, you, like, <laughs> to, to, be honest, to be honest with you, like, has made me, like, I kind of love that even more now. <laughs> Right, I, 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 I really like. I like that too. Yeah, kind of, kind of love it even more. Would, would I need that explained? I th- yeah, you could probably clear it up a bit more. But I like, I like endings being as like to movies like this. I want endings to be as sketchy and ah. as sparse as possible. Um, so yeah, I probably wouldn't want that. And if anything, that has made me now want to rewatch it again to see that end scene. <laughs> You know what? It's it's so funny the journey that I've gone on with this second watch because I need to uh, have a third watch once again after our talk because I'll tell you what, watching the movie I got a little disappointed with all the questions I had and then the commentary answered certain things and then talking with you I'm finding I'm glad he didn't answer certain things. Mm. It's so weird the back and forth I'm having on this and I, I hope the listeners, I hope, hope you all out there don't uh, think that that's a fickle approach to film criticism here, you know, but... I, I do think that, you know, Dave Z famously says, my, my co-host on the Watsy Party Horse Show famously says that a movie is just as good as the last time you view it. Yes. And so in that way, I think that's the same with interpretations. You know, rather than speaking to quality, a movie only means, you know, what it does based on your most recent viewing. And I think that a next one, a third viewing will indeed serve to either enlighten me or sketch me out even more, and I say both those words positively. <laughs> yeah, I think like it's the beauty of the beauty of a movie like this is that it begs repeat viewings. And oh yeah, there are certain movies that are the you know it's a, it's the difference between going to uh, a museum, which is a static museum that always has the same exhibits. And a museum mm-hmm. which changes like monthly is its exhibits. The structure 
is the same every time you visit. The door is always in the same place. The toilets are always located in the same place. <laughs> the, the, the security personnel might always be the same. But it's the content there within that is different. And, you know, your your viewings are all different based on what you see at that time. And the movies are like that. I think certain movies are almost a one and done. Like, once you watch them, you get everything you need from them. And sure. I don't mean this in a negative. There are plenty of movies that I, I genuinely really like that I know when I watch them, I'll probably never watch them again. Cause yeah, I'm sure. the same way. There are other movies, though, which almost, almost beg... For that rewatch, almost beg you to to come back and and sit down and view again because you know you might have felt like you knew what was going on, but you might not have, or you you like I say before, you read something or have a conversation with someone which just piques your interest, or you maybe like this has happened to me before, not with like uh, this movie specifically, but um, where like a month later I'll be sitting and then all of a sudden I'm like. Maybe, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and you have this, and then you have to go and watch the movie again to see if it plays the way you thought it was, or if you misremembered the detail, which yeah. like led to what just happened plenty of times as well. Oh, so sure. I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think a movie like, I think Kill List's Enduring Legacy is that it took a, uh, a specific genre style uh, and template an idea which hadn't been really used for a while. It's, it, I mean, this is a folk horror movie in the oh, grand yeah. traditions of British folk horror. And this is the... And I'm doing folk horror and Chronicle at the moment and Kill List's on that list. Ah. Um, Kill List is really the the first one which really breaks things back down to the roots of Blood and Satan's Claw and, mm. you know... The, the, uh, and specifically something like The Wicker Man. So it leans back into that. But it doesn't just do it for, like, a narrative sake, stylistically, and that tension that I was talking about brings it all back in there. But it updates, like we're talking about remakes, it updates and modernises and puts a fresh perspective. It takes a different perspective as well, that of putting it in the eye of a hitman. Um, yeah. And, and the, the, the ritual rites being the murder of certain people, not through your standard ritual where they must be killed with the, the blade of Salzazar. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's nothing like that. It's like, no, you need to murder these three guys. Here's the, the manila packets. Go away and do your job. Um, yeah. And I love that. It's like, a, it's like an adaptation, a quirky twist on something that feels familiar whilst making it feel modern and also, in a lot of respects, kind of unique. And doing it that way, and that's what, to me, makes the movie enduring is probably the important word for it. It makes that movie that I want to come back and check out again and again. The fact that he is so aloof with things and approaches things from weird perspectives and doesn't necessarily fulfil everything, you can make a movie that's very sparse in detail and make it terrible. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like, this answer's fucking nothing and I don't understand what anything's (laughs) going on. You can do that movie. You You can do that movie very, very easily. To do what he does and... Like put things that you will pick up on a second or third or fourth watch, um, and and have us speak about things. And a movie that I am very very familiar with, like I say, over ten viewings of this movie, and to be in a position that we're having a conversation, and I'm like, 
well, now I really like that ending even more than I did before because I'm now <laughs> looking at it in a yeah. different perspective. To me, that's that's the beauty of Kill List. That's to me, that's the grey that I'm talking about is yeah. the, the the ability to come back and appreciate something on a completely different level just through talking an idea out with someone else and going, well, you know, yeah, but I know you're saying that, but what about this and. Well, actually, that makes more sense. And then when you're saying that, that links to the beginning. And, you know, if we're talking about book endings and ideas being at the start of the movie, being paid off at the end of the movie, that fits far more snug and comfortable Mm -hmm. and narratively satisfying than the almost very simplistic view that I came to with him, which is, well, she's a member of the cult, isn't she? Ovs. Ovs. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I, I, I do, I really, really like that. Um, you know, Duncan, I I I gotta I I gotta praise you for what you're saying right now because the idea, like you said, of leaving out answers or plot points and things like that, and being sparse with your details, can absolutely and often it it does. We see it over and over, lead to a bad movie. But I think the distinction here is that we know that Wheatley knows what's going on behind the details that he doesn't give us. For instance, uh, you know, there was the movie uh, It Comes at Night 2017. Now, when I did a deep dive into that movie, I found, you know, that Trey Edward Schultz didn't really know the world of the film. And I'm not trying to knock the movie or knock him, but his approach to it was, well, I don't know anything really that the characters don't. And in to contrast that, Wheatley knows everything. His hand is deliberate, and even when he leaves things out, yeah, sure, he says he regrets leaving out, say, the I, the the clear identification of the MP, but even with maybe a little misstep there, he knows the details, and I can sense that. So even when we're not given those details, even if that commentary didn't exist, I have a feeling that Wheatley knows what's really going on behind everything rather than being just as in the dark as his character. What do you think of that? Yeah, that to me... It's what world building is so important. Like, yeah. like understanding not only actors. I love act when actors say that they not only go away and do the research or whatever, but like actors specifically put themselves in the mindset to the point where if someone was to ask them a question, they would answer as the actor. And yeah. some people call that method. And no, method is like always being in the actor. Like, but to me, like I should be able to. I should be able to sit down with the, the actor that played Jay, you know, now and say, you know, if Jay had, if this had happened to Jay at that point, or, you know, what do you think happened to Jay in Sarajevo? Yeah. I would like to think that he has an answer for that. Even if Wheatley hasn't given them the answer to that, I would like to think that that is something that's crossed his mind. I think movies sometimes fail um, when they're trying to be obtuse or abstract or like aloof. When no one has thought of that, you yep. know, it's just that something happened. Something happened, and our characters are here. Um, that's why, like, in Bruges will be such a rewarding watch for you, uh, oh, not only because they, they keep linking back and making reference to certain things, but specifically because you get the feeling that, like, both Colin Farrell and um, oh, his name's escaped me. He's a he's the pride and joy of uh, many great movies, and I mentioned his name earlier on. And I'll come Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson, thank okay. you. Yeah. Uh, like both of those guys, to me, like when they're talking, I feel like they've worked ten jobs before. Like Gal and yeah. Jay, I feel like they've had that is pivotal 
to a movie like this is the the world that it builds, the things that the fact that you said to me on this recording that Wheatley said that he likes to think that Fiona was in carving things in the house uh-huh. in between those visits is more important to me that he has thought that yes. as not only the writer but the filmmaker. That's that's more important to me than actually seeing, you know, like uh, later on, little things being carved. I, I, the idea that he's thought of that and hasn't needed to put that in, but it was just this little idea that he was playing with that might be in there somewhere, and that's just the world that he's built, I think is hugely important. I think it adds to the authenticity of the delivery of the movie. It's a, a yep. movie that feels very confident, very sure of itself, even though it isn't always necessarily spoon-feeding the answers. It's a very... See, like, when you look at this movie, this is a supremely confident kind of abstract horror movie like yeah. like on a level where like you you look at Dim Terrace and Dim Terrace has some building blocks for sure but the monumental mm-hmm. jump up the kill list is you know it's, it's scary how quickly he's like right this is right that's how I make a movie right this is how I tell a story you know what I mean it's like it's yeah. just this big big jump right into it and like I like I said like when it comes down to it it's like a kind of closing statement for Killers from me, when I speak about the 2010s and with you, I am like 100%. 2010s to me, I think, depending on how this next decade goes, the 2010s will be looked upon and it should rightly be looked upon as the greatest decade for horror that we've ever yes. had. Yes, amen. I, I think... Yep, I concur. By a... By a like some distance I mean I love like no one's going to like yes my favourite movies I've ever seen come from different decades like my but that's just a product of I've grown up watching Mm. loads of horror movies from the 70s and like John Carpenter made a lot of movies in the 80s that are up there amongst my favourite movies of all time and you know what I mean but when I look at just sheer volume of having done those lists having done those top 10s and looking at the 70s and getting to like a like a 1973 and going, well, there's one movie that's really good here and nine that aren't, um, or lesser versions. Like, when we come to talk about that decade, I'm going to be stuck to narrow it down to 10 in some cases. I'm going to be like that. We're missing oh. a lot of fucking incredible movies. And I don't think you can have that conversation. And this is me being 100% honest and in a lot of respects biased. I don't think you can have that conversation without Killless being mentioned because, to me, before Midsommar and before Hereditary are doing their things with Ari Aster, really shaping that kind of weird, kind of paganistic horror, uh, like, storytelling, mm-hmm. and the way he's done it, Killless was there first in that decade in 2011. And oh, to yeah. be honest with you, it holds up. It's not as pretty to look at, it's a bit gruff True. around the edges. True. Um, doesn't have the budget. It has an incredible score. Just like Dim Terrace, the scoring kill is yeah. fucking great. In fact, that's where most of the tension for the movie comes when nothing's happening. As the creepy noises are happening in the background, you're like, nothing is happening. Why is the music like this? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but like all that that comes out of it, kill this to me is, is a hugely important movie. Not only for Ben Wheatley, it puts him on the map. Um, as a filmmaker and Sightseers is going to be a hoot to talk about uh, next month but yeah it's like a hugely hugely important movie for all the right reasons you know what I mean it's not a hugely important movie because critics are telling you it's a hugely important movie it's a hugely important movie because it does it's made for half a million 
um, and it doesn't feel like it. And it, it's, a, it's a really interesting, compelling story that you can revisit many, many times and get different answers every time you do it. What yes. more can you want from a movie? Right. Oh, in time, yeah. And, you know, if those were your were those your final thoughts there? That's my final thoughts. So you okay. give me yours. All right. Well, yeah, you know, this is man. I, I echo th- those sentiments, man. This is my kind of story, folks. You know, it starts small and intimate and ultimately grows into something big, deadly and out of control. You know, I appreciate narratives that don't just live within the confines of a simple premise. Right. And, you know, it's dark, funny, gory, shocking. I give it high, high marks, and I'm right there with you, man. Exploding Heads Horror Movie Podcast is, you know, doing a top 100 of the 2010s, and, oh, this is in in there. Oh, you better believe it is. And, uh, in fact, it tops Down Terrace as my favorite Wheatley film on our journey here on Opera Omnia, if you know. So, <laughs> thus far, Duncan. <laughs> I agree. I, I agree. As it stands just now, two episodes in, two movies in, yeah. Kill List is Ben Wheatley's best movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's top of the list. Mr. Watson, we have been going for two hours, and trust oh. me, no one is happier that we've been going for two hours, given <laughs> everyone their bang for their buck but we will take a very short break and when we close out the show after that short break we will announce what we'll be doing in a month's time and that'll be coming right up right after this hey feeling down feeling low not enough podcasts about movies in your life why not try they must be destroyed on sight the new podcast cure all sure to get you right with the world and on a path to better living We have exploitation, we have Italian horror, we have zombies, we have slashers, we have crime films, we have spaghetti westerns, we even have sci-fi and sex comedies. So take a dose of... They must be destroyed on sight! As needed, and let the hosts, Lee Russell, Daniel Harper, Paul Romali, and the odd guest host, Cure What Ails Ya. Warning, may cause atrophy, African consumption, black fever, bone shave, chin puff, colic, cramp colic, Dropsy of the brain, elephantitis, grocer's itch, jaundice, mania, miasma, mortification, palsy, pox disease, rheumatism, scurvy, St. Anthony's fire, summer complaint, and worm fit in some people. Consult a physician before listening. And you've been listening to Opera Omnia. This has been season number one, episode number two, looking exclusively at Ben Wheatley's filmography. Myself and Mr. Watson have just concluded a review of his second movie, Kill List, both agreeing that Kill List is now top of the pile. If this was the Highlander, it would be the only one. (laughs) Uh, But we will see if it can retain its space in one month's time when we go in a different tact entirely and we look at Ben Wheatley doing a horror comedy. Uh, Yep, serial killers and kind of rural... (laughs) <laughs> rural England <laughs> I mean I adore this movie I cannot wait to do it I cannot wait to hear your opinions Mr. Watson because oh, my friend can't wait you need to do it you need to rewatch it and we'll see uh, we'll see if Killless can be bested oh indeed mm. can't wait man uh, the, this, the, 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 the time between this recording and that recording can't come soon enough for me buddy 
Oh, yes. I know. This is everything is going the way I hoped and more. Um, now, <laughs> yeah. like I said, like I said at the start here, you are now like a car carry member of a brand new show since the last time you recorded. However, you have a show that pays the bills, keeps the lights on in the studio, so to speak. <laughs> uh, this is the point of the show where I would say, plug your ears, let people know where they can go after this episode finishes and check out more of your stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, first off, I, I better do this. I, I gotta thank the homie Derek Bourgeois for hooking me up with my copy of Kill List for this episode. So I just wanted to shout him out and thank him really quickly before we we, we end the recording, because Derek's the man. I've said mm-hmm. it before, but if I had to make a movie trivia team to go against people for money, I'd need Derek on my team, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, uh, yeah, so look, uh, regarding plugs, man, if, if, if you're picking up what I've been trying to put down on this episode and you find you want to pick up a little more of that, then listen to my podcast that I host with Dave Z called The Watt Z. See, get it? Dave Z, Mr. Watson, <laughs> Watt Z, yeah? The Watt Z Party Horror Show. It's a one-stop shop for all your horror podcasting needs, including that month's horror releases, a topic of discussion, and then an in-depth breakdown of a horror film of our choosing. It's a three-act show. You get them releases, some discussion, and then a movie talk doesn't get any better than that if you get value from duncan's work on all his shows and you you fucking better then we are of the same ilk in that regard that we try to do the same thing duncan does by approaching things in a fun way intellectually thematically all that stuff that you you like when you listen to the podcast under the stairs we try to give it to you too and uh you won't regret subscribing to the watsy party horse show Nice, yeah. nice, and you are you have uh, the horror casts. How many? How many do they put out? Uh, is is it like one a week or the oh, yes other week or yeah? Well, with with the Watsi Party Horror Show, we are a monthly podcast, uh, mm-hmm. just like this effort here, folks. But the, with Opera Omnia. But the Horrorcast is weekly, but they, they have their main episodes and then they do, which they do bi-weekly. And then in between those, they do their uh, Rotten Roundtable, you, uh, which you've been on. And so they yeah. do that. So they are yeah, essentially yeah. a weekly show. So you can tune in to hear me on the main episodes. I might pop in here and there on a Rotten Roundtable, maybe if, if my schedule allows. But you generally will hear me on their main episodes. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Right, ladies and gents, you have had two hours of what I can only describe as orgasmic quality dissecting (laughs) one of the best by one of the best. Um, I've enjoyed every single minute of this and we are back in one month's time. The middle of March, we will return to you to do the third movie in the weekly filmography we're looking at sightseers which came out two years after this so he's he was on a he was on a bit of a roll and that roll continues right through until then please take care of yourselves out there continue checking out the shows on the tea Putts collective coming next week will be another episode of that them their chronicle podcast looking at folk horror uh, from the uk it's going to be a fun time. And check out that Doing the Nasty for all your Tier 3 video nasty horror needs. But until then, wherever you are, please take care of yourselves out there. For myself and Mr. Watson, this is Opera Omnia, and we'll speak to you on next month. Yeah, this
this will happen. I I guarantee if you if you let Skype control things, it's like it's like um, it's like Lethal Weapon Two, with that great scene where they're in the car leaving the drive-through, and you know they fuck you at the drive-through. They fuck you. You've got you've got a co-host. It sounds like it sounds like they fuck you at the. That's what they do. They will, the Skype will fuck you in the recording. They fuck you because they realise you'll be finished your recording and rendering your audio down before you realise you've just been fucked. Oh God! It's true. It's true, my friend. It's true. It's true. Right, let's let's kick into this. Uh, we are recording okay. in three, two, one. <laughs> 